Welcome to The Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thank you for listening. In March 2011, Japan suffered from a massive earthquake and tsunami, both of which are obviously natural events over which we have no control. But as a result of these events, the Fukushima nuclear station lost power, and several explosions occurred which released radiation into the environment. This brings us back to many of the safety issues which followed the Three Mile Island problems in 1979 and the Chernobyl problems in 1986. There has been and still are considerable and important debates about the safety of nuclear power stations. Today, however, we want to focus on one aspect of that debate, which is the public health issues surrounding the health effects of radiation exposure. We are pleased to have with us Dr. Jimmy Hara, who is a clinical professor of family medicine at the Geffen School of Medicine in Los Angeles. Dr. Hara, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Let's begin with a simple definition. What is radiation and how does it affect us? Well, radiation is basically a situation where you have energy that, that moves through space and ionizing radiation is where there's enough energy to remove electrons from atoms, break apart the nuclei of atoms, and do uh, break apart molecules. And examples of ionizing radiation would include things like x-rays that we're all exposed to. And then just there's a background radiation that we're all exposed to, uh, courtesy of uh, our sun. So this radiation, when it moves through the body and hits the atoms in us, that's when the damage occurs? Exactly. And, and basically, there are different types of radioactive materials that are important in terms of our health. And they come in actually three major forms called alpha particles. And these are very large particles that basically uh, don't even penetrate skin. However, they can be inhaled, for example, and cause damage to our lungs. And another example are what we call beta particles. And these are essentially electrons in the outer core of an atom that can and these are particles that actually can penetrate into tissues, and an example of that actually would be iodine-131, which is the beta particle, but it also is a gamma emitter. And what gamma rays are, these are what we'll call photons that can pass through the body, and in fact, they can even penetrate cement and concrete. There are also the issues of eating it, drinking it, breathing it, and these are all very significant and, of course, equally dangerous mechanisms of getting the radiation into our bodies. Exactly. And then even, you know, if penetration does occur, the effects of that may not be seen for a long time. And the best example I can offer there is after the Hiroshima atomic bomb, there's a very famous story of a young girl, Sadako, Sadako Sasaki, and she was two years old at the time the bomb was detonated in Japan. And she, you know, lived a fairly healthy childhood. And then at age 11, she tried out for her track team at her school and made it because she was very athletic. And the day after she tried out for her track team, she succumbed to what the Japanese call genbakubyo. And that basically translated into English means atomic bomb disease. And it is better known as acute leukemia. So basically she came down with acute leukemia one decade after her exposure to the radiation, and then within a year, she died. In fact, the very famous story related to Sadako is that she was visited by her very dear friend, uh, Shizuko Hamamoto, who had also made the track team. At that visit, Shizuko gave her a golden piece of paper, origami paper, to make a paper crane. And so 
when asked, you know, what this is all about, Sadako de Shuzuko reminded Sadako of the uh, of the idea that if you make 1,000 paper cranes, you can get anything that you wish. And her wish basically was that she get healthy and recover from leukemia and be able to run with the track team. And so every day, basically, she would make more paper cranes, hoping to get to 1,000. Unfortunately, when she hit 644, she died. So basically, at her memorial service, what ultimately happened is that the community got together, and they brought the remainder of the paper cranes. So at the time of her funeral, there were 1,000 paper cranes that adorned her casket. And one year later, the city of Hiroshima created a memorial in her honor in the Peace Park in Hiroshima, and it's called the Sadako Memorial. And on it, the inscription basically reads in Japanese, hear our cry, hear our prayer, peace on earth. And every day to this day, there are 1,000 new paper cranes delivered to replace the previous day's uh, paper cranes. There's this book called Sadako and the Thousand Cranes, and actually... I was happy to learn that a number of the medical students are currently rotating through with me. They recall reading that book when they were in graduate school. So hopefully the message is getting out there. So the point basically is that the radiation exposure that she suffered was at age 2, but she didn't suffer fatal consequence until age uh, 11 and 12. So this raises two very interesting questions because one has to wonder if these particles simply stayed in her body long enough that the effect accumulated. After all, plutonium and uranium have half-lives of billions of years. I think uranium is 4.5 billion years. Or was her body just different? Did it just did it just develop the leukemia more slowly? Uh, what it is, there are basically four radioisotopes that can cause damage to uh, health effects in human beings. One of them is iodine-131, and that has become very famous now because a lot of people are trying to get a hold of potassium iodide to protect themselves. So that's I-131. And the cesium-137. And cesium-137 is interesting because it will go everywhere in our body that potassium goes. And likewise, in nature, it will go everywhere that potassium tends to go. The richest source of potassium in nature are fruits. So cesium, when it's in the ground, basically gets taken up by plants and bingo, you've got a fairly hefty load of cesium-137 in, in a fruit that you might eat. Bananas and oranges are being the famous. You know, everyone in medicine knows that eating a banana, drink orange juice, and your potassium will go up. Well, if a plant were growing in an area where there was radioactive cesium, basically, then it will be loaded with cesium-137. So how does it get moved across oceans and land masses? One would think that it would be diluted, but it still is a dilution of materials with very long half-lives. If we look at Chernobyl, basically what happened is there are plume, huge plumes that occurred, and, and the plumes basically just drifted with the winds and what have you, so that would be one way. The more typical way actually relates to if there's rain, and in Japan right now there was snow and rain, so if there's a plume and these particles are up in the air, then they're basically carried down into the ground, and they get absorbed with the groundwater, and then wherever the groundwater happens to go, there is radioactivity. So besides the cesium-137, there's also the, the other radioisotopes that are concerned health-wise basically would be strontium-90, and strontium tends to go wherever bone happens to be because it's very similar, to, it's kind of similar to calcium. 
And then likewise, plutonium, and plutonium has very, very long half-life and will be here many generations, probably even after human beings are gone from the planet, for all we know. But anyway, it has a very, very long half-life. So if any plutonium happens to get into the soil or what have you, then, then you're talking about an area that, that really should be rendered uninhabitable for, for centuries. After the atomic bomb testing series in Nevada, there were a group of people who were downwind from the testing sites, and they were known as the downwinders. What do we know now about the people in Japan, given the recent events? How much danger are they in? What would be a reasonable estimate, given what we now know? In Japan, the problem is, as you realize, a tsunami. In fact, most of the problem was not from the earthquake, the 9.0 earthquake, but rather from the tsunami that followed. And if you saw pictures of the tsunami, it literally looked like lava. I mean, it looked like it was solid. So anywhere that that went, basically, and if the plume happened to occur around that area, then all the radioisotopes could be carried with the water wherever the water went. And then in turn, if that radioactivity should get into the ground, then there are fruit trees or what have you, then they can end up absorbing and picking up the radiation as well. And then this distributed radiation can last for a very long time. Yeah. Now, the radioisotope that everyone is seemingly concerned about is I-131. And so as you realize uh, nationwide, especially here in California, there was a big rush for everyone to buy potassium iodide. And the way that works is that if you take potassium iodide, it basically saturates the thyroid gland. And so, therefore, if there's radioactive I-131 around, it won't be picked up by the body. And fortunately, I-131 has a relatively short half-life. So as long as you take the potassium iodide, then you're protected, especially for the time frame that the uh, radio, the I-131, might have been absorbed. But here again, the direct effect of that I-131, if you happen to be unfortunate enough to be exposed to it, it occurs much later. So we're talking about maybe 20 or even 25 years later. Then you might come down with one of the thyroid cancers. And as it turns out, most of the thyroid cancers from I-131 are not that serious, but they are cancer nevertheless. So there's what we call papillary and follicular and anaplastic thyroid cancers. But it turns out the majority of the thyroid cancers, at least seen in Japan after uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, they happen to be the more benign papillary and follicular, which basically can be taken care of surgically or actually, ironically, uh, with radioactive iodine. Here again, most of our knowledge is from the Hiroshima Nagasaki experience. So it turns out lung cancer can occur as a result of radioisotopes being aerosolized, and then the individual breathes it in. And these would be the alpha particles that could be breathed in. But they would just sit in the lung, again, for a long, long time. And then here again, decades later, then a person might be a victim of lung cancer. And the reason we know that the radiation, in fact, is responsible for some lung cancer seen in Japan is that a lot of the Japanese who have succumbed to lung cancer have been women who don't smoke, as opposed to, as opposed to Japan as a society, the men tended to be relatively heavy smokers. But it's the women who didn't smoke who seem to uh, be victims of lung cancer and succumb to it. And what about children or pregnant women? They are the most vulnerable of all by far. The radiation frequently tends to gravitate toward the cells that multiply rapidly in acute radiation illness, which unfortunately I'm afraid some of the workers who heroically have been trying to 
prevent meltdowns in Fukushima Daiichi plants basically may succumb to. It's where you have nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, and blisters of the skin, and that's because the skin and the intestinal tract are the areas where the cells proliferate the most rapidly and are more apt to pick up the radiation. But similarly, children and women of reproductive age, I'm afraid, are also very vulnerable. By the same token, what's the real danger of people who are not in Japan? The people in the United States, in Australia, in China, other areas downwind, what's the real danger for them, can we say? At this moment, at least, and I happen to be on the west coast of the United States, so the exposure we're going to have is probably not going to be that significant, to the point that actually if people were to start taking potassium iodide right now, they would probably have more harm from the potassium iodide that they take compared to any risk of I-131 exposure. It's important to point out that we are all exposed to radiation in the normal course of living. It just has to do with the amount of radiation that we're exposed to. Oh, exactly. Average background, the two to three millisieverts per year. Oh, actually, I could define what some units are. In the old days, we talk about RADS and REM. RADS basically was the radiation that was absorbed. The REM was the potential for biological damage that might occur as a result of that exposure. The new units that we're talking about are grays and sieverts. So basically, one gray is equivalent to what used to be 100 rads, and similarly, one fever is what's equivalent to the old 100 rem. So fever basically is the biological damage that's done, if you will, whereas the actual absorbed dose would be the gray. So, for example, if you have exposure to alpha particles, the biological damage done can be 10 or 20 times greater than the actual absorbed dose that you see. That would be especially true for something like plutonium. So the sievert takes into consideration the type of radiation, the exposure levels of the radiation, the particular organ or part of the body that got the radiation, and in effect it gives us a better estimate of the real damage to the tissues or to any living entity, I guess. Human damage, exactly. Whereas the gray is just how much you were exposed to, how much you took into your body. But, but it's fever fed is probably a better indication of what's going to happen to the individual. For example, if you have 1,000 millifevers so one fever, you will get what we call acute radiation sickness. And that's where you get nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, and blisters on the skin, and, and your hair ends up falling out. But if you get more than five or six fevers, basically, you're dead. In Japan, and for that matter, Chernobyl, all the people who were exposed to more than six sieverts, they, they were dead within a week. And normal exposure is one or two millisieverts per year. That's a thousandth of a sievert. That's not very much by comparison. Exactly. So the average background from our sun basically would be to the tune of maybe two or three millisieverts per year. And then people who fly airplanes all the time, basically, they can be exposed to maybe two or three times that amount. The average chest X-ray is 0.1 millisiever, uh, whereas the CAT scan, the CT scan of the belly, basically you're talking about 15 or 20 millisievers. Which brings up an important point, because at these normal doses, these low doses of radiation, the cells, by and large, can repair themselves. It's not the destructive effect of a much larger dose. Exactly, exactly. Again, in terms of the decision by a physician to order a CAT scan, we usually pay the potential risk versus the benefit that might be derived. So we, we are aware that tests that we're ordering are not in and of themselves harmful. Is there any hard data to suggest that exposure to radiation causes birth defects? 
I also read that there has been discussion over the years, not yet proven, but enough that it's actually had serious discussion that exposure to radiation may actually increase the amount of or the frequency of mental retardation. Yeah, there's certainly a scattered data that might support that. And once again, it's not every day that we expose individuals to very high-dose radiation. So therefore, we have to draw upon what we learned from Chernobyl, what we learned from Three Mile Island, what we learned from Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and kind of draw conclusions from those experiences. But basically, I think the bottom line is the lower radiation risk you're talking about, the better. And I don't know that there is such a thing as no risk whatsoever. All of the events in Japan bring us face-to-face with the reality that we are a worldwide society now that requires a great deal of electricity. The question is, how do we get it and how do we do it in a safe manner? The events in Japan remind us that there are dangers here. And so we're looking at this as a public health issue and trying to get a better handle on what we need to know about the risk of getting electricity with nuclear reactors. There are 104 nuclear power plants in this country. Only two of them happen to be in California, and I'm in California. However, the two nuclear reactors that we have in California happen to be on San Andreas Fault. So they're on a fault line. So we have Diablo Canyon in Northern California. We have San Onofre in Southern California. San Onofre, not only is it on a fault line, but additionally, it's right off the ocean, very similar to the Fukushima Daiichi power plant. California has an earthquake issue, but understand the majority of the power plants happen to be in the Midwest and the East, and many of them happen to be in floodplains. And after what we saw with the tsunami, I would submit that maybe it's more dangerous to be on a floodplain with a nuclear reactor than it is to be on an earthquake fault. Dr. Jimmy Hara is a clinical professor of family medicine at the Geffen School of Medicine in Los Angeles. We've been talking about the health effects of radiation. Dr. Hara, thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. Thank you.